We have an anchor that keeps the soul Steadfast and sure while the billows roll Fastened to the rock which The Anchor of the Soul with Mike Hickson Preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ in Olive Branch, Mississippi And now, Mike Hickson In verses 15 through 18 in Colossians chapter 1 Paul deals with the preeminence of our Lord Just a moment ago we sang Reminding ourselves that Jesus is the King of Kings And Lord of Lords I want to begin by talking about the preeminence of Jesus in creation. And as we begin this study, first of all, Paul presents some imagery that helps us to get a grasp of the one that we call Jesus. First of all, he provides us with a picture or portrait of the Lord. And what he says is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The word image here carries with it the idea of likeness. It it really means a figure. Jesus, as you well know, is a perfect representation of Almighty God. I think about his words in the book of John. In John chapter 1 verse 18, Jesus said that he came to declare the Father. And then of course, In John chapter 14, Jesus had been discussing with the apostles the fact that he would be leaving them. And they were distressed because the Lord would no longer be with them physically speaking. And so it's in that context that Jesus said in verse 9 that those who have seen him have seen the Father. And really this underscores the deity of Christ. The fact that Jesus was God in the flesh, God incarnate. When he came into the world, he gave the people of his age, of his day and time, a perfect representation of God the Father. In the sense, he demonstrated, manifested the essence of God. And then, Paul also makes mention of the fact that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. When he uses that word, he's not talking about the first to be born. The concept of the firstborn carries with it the idea of one's priority to and preeminence over creation. In other words, Jesus is preeminent over creation itself. Jewish scholars in days gone by said that the term firstborn would find its equivalence in the only begotten. You remember John 3, 16, where Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And there's the phrase, or there's really the idea, the only begotten, the only one of its kind. But Jewish writers, Jewish scholars, said that this term carries with it the idea of uncreated. Again, going back to the deity of Christ. Some people have the idea, the mistaken notion, that Jesus is a created being. What you need to understand is that Jesus has always existed right beside God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Somebody says, well, how do you know that? In the book of Micah, in chapter 5 at verse 2, Micah foretells the birthplace of Jesus, which would be Bethlehem. 
But he described the coming of the Messiah, that is Jesus, the Son of God. And he said, whose goings forth are from of old, even everlasting. A footnote says, from the days of eternity. And the idea is that Jesus has always existed. He has no beginning. He has no ending. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Now, in John chapter 1, John said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. John there, underscoring or emphasizing the deity of Jesus, the fact that he is God. Now, we talk about his pre-incarnate state, that is, that time before he inhabited human flesh, and then his incarnate state, when he took upon himself human flesh. John would say in verse 14, And the Word became flesh, that is, that eternal logos, was clothed upon with human flesh. So he said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John said, We beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so, here is a, I guess we would say a picture, a profile of Jesus. There's a second thing I want you to see, and look if you would at verses 16 and 17. Because we talk about the picture that is presented unto us by the Apostle Paul of Jesus. But now he turns his attention to the power of Jesus. Well, what kind of power are we talking about? Well, obviously we're talking about deity. And deity has all power. So in verse 16, Paul first of all speaks of his creative power. That is, Jesus is the creator. He said, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. So everything was made, created, brought into existence by Jesus. God the Father was the architect of the universe. Jesus was the agent through which the world was made. We talk about the redemptive plan. God was the architect of the redemptive plan. Jesus was the agent, the executor of that plan. In other words, he came to fulfill that redemptive plan. Now Paul said everything in this universe has been created by Jesus. Those things that we can see and those things which are beyond our vision. We can't see oxygen, but we know it exists. We can't see the wind, but again, we know it exists. We feel the wind blowing in our face, etc. So Jesus created all things. And then, according to Paul, he created those angelic beings, those principalities and powers, thrones and dominions, which I believe is a reference to the classes of angelic angelic beings. The Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, And you, O Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth. He said, The heavens are the work of your hands. They shall perish. But he said, Speaking of Christ, you shall remain. And then in John chapter 1, when John introduced his readers to the word, the Logos, in verse 3 he said, All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So here is Jesus presented unto us as the creator. But not only is he the creator, but he is our sustainer. Look if you would at verse 17. 
He is before all things, and in him all things consist. Who is it that keeps this universe in check? How is it that our universe, our solar system, how is it that it operates according to certain laws? Let me tell you how that happens. Because there is a God in heaven that is behind. The Hebrew writer says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. So we are the recipients of God's sustaining power, the symmetry and the harmony that is so evident in our universe goes back to Jesus. He is the one that is keeping everything in check. So, first of all, he is preeminent over creation. But then there is a second thing I want you to see, and that is Jesus is preeminent over the church. Listen to him in verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. And there's that idea of Jesus having supremacy over the church, over, as we would say, the spiritual realm, the spiritual world, just as he is supreme or just as he demonstrates his supremacy in the material and physical world, he is preeminent in the spiritual realm. I want to begin by talking about the relationship that Jesus has with the church. And there's some things that I want you to see in verse 18 that I think are really important because there are a lot of people that sometimes maybe misunderstand the church and her relationship to Jesus. The church is a very important entity or institution. And the reason is because God in heaven planned to bring the church into existence according to Ephesians chapter 3 verses 9 through 11. It exists tonight according to his eternal purpose, which as Paul said, he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I want to I begin by first of all talking about the founder of the church. Listen again to what Paul said in verse 18. He is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning. That word beginning is very important in this context because really what it means is origin, active cause, the source from which something came into being. And what Paul is saying here is that the church had its beginning or owes its beginning to Jesus. Now, if you go back and you look at the, the ministry of Jesus, let, let me just very quickly say, the prophets foretold of the coming of the church. Isaiah saw the church as an exalted mountain into which all nations would flow, according to Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Daniel said that the church, or kingdom of God, would come in the days of the Roman kings, based on his interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, in Daniel chapter 2. When John the Baptist, who was, by the way, the forerunner to Christ, he was to prepare the hearts and minds of people to receive Christ. When John the Baptist began his earthly ministry, he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, he said the very same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, according to Matthew chapter 4, in about verse 17. So Jesus came to bring the church or the kingdom, and those terms are used interchangeably at various places and times in Scripture. But Jesus came to bring the church or the kingdom into existence. And so in Matthew chapter 16, you remember Jesus as he came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi. 
He asked his disciples on that occasion, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then Jesus asked the question, but whom do you say that I am? Simon Peter spoke up and he said, you are the Christ, that is the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God. Jesus then complimented Peter. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my father which is in heaven. And he said, I also say to you, that upon this rock I will build my church. So Jesus promised to build the church. So upon whom was the church built? It was built on the Lord, wasn't it? Jesus not only founded the church, not only did he build the church, but the Bible says he is the foundation of the church. Everything rests upon him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, Paul said, for other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul said that the church has been built upon the apostles and prophets, and of course Jesus Christ, who is, as he said, the chief cornerstone. And the idea is everything rests on Jesus, the Son of God. Well, let me ask this question. If Jesus is the foundation, the builder of the church, what did it take for him to purchase it? Well, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, the apostle Paul, when he stood before the elders of the church from Ephesus while he was in Miletus, said, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The church was bought by the blood of Jesus. It cost Jesus his life. Paul would say in Ephesians 5 verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for it. Jesus willingly went to the cross, suffered, bled, and died for us. But in that redemptive plan, he also purchased the church. And so he is the foundation and everything rests upon him. There's a second thing I want you to see from verse 18. And that is we have the framework of the church. In verse 18, Paul said, and he is the head of the body. Well, of course, he's talking about Jesus, isn't he? And he said that Jesus is the head of the church. In other words, Jesus Christ is the one who regulates the conduct of the body. And the body, of course, is the church. In Ephesians 1:22, Paul said he put all things in subjection under his feet and made him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Jesus is the head of the church. He is the head of the body. And the body, of course, according to the Apostle Paul in verses 22 and 23, is the church. Well, why do I, why do I bring that out? Because Paul is saying here that Jesus is the head of, of that divine body that he purchased with his own blood. So what he's saying is there is one head and there's one body. Well, how do I know that there is just one body? Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul said, and there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all, through all, and in you all. So biblically speaking, what Paul is saying is there is one head and there's just one body. Well, if Jesus is in heaven 
and the church is on earth, that is the body is on earth, how then is he going to regulate the conduct or the behavior of the church on earth? Let me tell you how he does that. It's his will. In other words, it's the New Testament. Jesus is able to regulate the affairs of his body on the earth through his word. Do you remember what Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17? He said, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. To do something in the name of the Lord Jesus means to do it by his authority. Now somebody says, well, does Jesus have authority to regulate the conduct of the behavior of his church? Well, listen to what he said in Matthew 28, verse 18. All power or all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Jesus here said that he has been given authority in heaven and earth. Well, in Matthew chapter 17, Matthew records Jesus as he went up into a mountain and was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. When he was on that mountain, a voice came forth from heaven. God the Father was the one who spoke. And God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now listen to what he said. Hear him. Well, why should we hear Jesus? Because he's the head. Because as our head, he has the right. As a matter of fact, the church belongs to him. And so since it belongs to him, he has every right to control the affairs, the work, etc., of the church. So the framework. Now that's the universal framework of the church. I understand that locally, a local congregation, and there are local congregations, and you can read about the local congregations that are spoken of in Scripture. Saints that met in the city of Colossae, or in the city of Ephesus, or in Pergamos, or Thyatira, etc. There were congregations that, that met and worked and worshipped on behalf of the Lord. Now, in a local setting, you have men that meet the criterion of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and they can serve as a bishop or an overseer or a pastor, and those terms are synonymous in Scripture. They have, they have the responsibility of leading and guiding and feeding the flock or feeding the church here upon this earth. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, Paul talks about the qualifications of those who would serve as deacons, special servants, and the men who function in this capacity meet those qualifications. So you have elders, deacons. Paul, of course, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, would talk about an evangelist, somebody who preaches, teaches the word of God. We have that in local settings. And then you have the membership. The Bible talks about those of us who belong to the body of Christ. For example, in Acts chapter 5, verse 14, the Bible identifies us as believers. We are called disciples. The Bible refers to us as followers of the way or Christians or brethren, saints. Those are terms that are used to designate people that belong to the Lord and we belong to him. Now, there's a third thing I want you to see. We talk about the foundation of the church, the framework of the church, but the third thing I want to key in on is that there is forgiveness in the church. Now, I understand that forgiveness is a result of our obedience to the gospel. 
And what washes away our sins is the blood of Jesus. But those who are in the church, they comprise the saved, the redeemed, the reconciled. Look, if you would, back up and look at verse 12 in chapter 1 of Colossians. Here Paul said, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Paul said he has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the son of his love. In verse 14 he said, it is in that sphere that we enjoy redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now in verse 13 Paul said that those who have obeyed the gospel, they have been delivered out of the power of darkness. That is that domain or that sphere, sphere that is under the control of the devil. It's the world. And Paul said that when we obey the gospel, God takes us out of the world and places us in the kingdom or in the church. Well, let me just call attention to Acts chapter 2 for a minute. You remember in the second chapter of the book of Acts, we have a record of the, of the birth of the New Testament church. And the Bible tells us that Peter, along with the other apostles, stood up and preached to that great multitude of people that had assembled in Jerusalem to observe Pentecost. The Bible says that Peter preached the resurrected Christ. The people who were assembled, they were well aware of Jesus. As a matter of fact, Peter said that you have taken him and by lawless hands have crucified and slain him. But he said God raised him from the dead. When they heard that message... Luke said that they were pricked or cut to the heart. What was it that cut the heart of those assembled? Well, it was God's word. Do you remember Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Hebrew writer said that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So when they heard the gospel for the first time, they were cut to the heart so they cried out to Peter and the rest of the apostles and they asked, what shall we do? Peter said, here's what you do. You repent and then you need to be baptized. Well, why do you need to do that in the name of Jesus? Peter said, for the remission of your sins. That is, so that your sins can be remitted or removed or forgiven. I want to ask you a question. The people to whom he was preaching on that occasion, did they believe in Jesus? You know they believed in him. He talked about Jesus of Nazareth in the context of his sermon. He told them that he had been delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. And he said, you by wicked hands, lawless hands, have taken, crucified, and slain. They believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. What they needed to do was to repent, turn from a life of sin, and then be baptized into Christ. Now, Luke said in verse 41 that about 3,000 souls were baptized on that day. Now, in verse 47, the Bible says, And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul said, By one spirit were you all baptized into one body. Now, somebody might say, Well, I thought salvation was in Christ. It is. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, the Bible says, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may obtain salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Salvation is in Christ. When I obey the gospel of Christ, 
God then takes me out of the world and places me into his church, which is his body. That's why when Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, he said, By one spirit were you all baptized into one body. We're baptized into Christ, yes. But we're also baptized into his body, into his church. So why do we need to be a member of the church? Why do we need to be a follower of Jesus? Why do we need to be the kind of people that would obey the gospel? In other words, why do we need to put our faith and trust in Jesus? Well, Jesus said, except you believe that I'm he, you'll die in your sins. John 8, 24. We have to believe that Jesus is the son of God. And then, of course, we repent, turn from a life of sin. We get out of, as some would say, the sinning business. Jesus said in Luke 13, 3, except you repent, you'll perish. And then we are honored to confess with our lips that we believe Jesus Christ is the son of God. We are then immersed in a watery grave of baptism. Why is that? For salvation, Mark 16, 16. For the remission of sins, Acts 2, verse 38. For the washing away of sins, Acts 22, 16. When I obey the gospel, God puts me in the church. And as a part of the church, I am a part of the saved. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 5, 23. In Ephesians 5, 23, Paul said that Jesus is the Savior of the body. That's why it's so important to obey the gospel. Because when I obey the gospel, I am in Christ. And if I am in Christ, I am in the church. And it's in Christ and in the church that I have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. That's exactly what Paul's saying in Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14. That when you obey the gospel, and he's writing to saints in the first century, and he's saying, look, when you obeyed the gospel, God took you out of the world and he put you in a divine body. And in that divine body, you belong to him. If you go back and you look at the Old Testament, there are figures and types and shadows of God's redemptive plan that was executed by Jesus. But if you go back and look at Exodus chapter 12, there was the institution of the Passover. Jesus today is our Passover lamb, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In chapter 13, God instructed the children of Israel to set apart the firstborn. He said, whether it be man or animal. Why is that? Because he said, it's mine. It belongs to me. Now, in the Old Testament, God said regarding the firstborn, it's mine. What about the New Testament? In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer addresses the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. What did God say about the firstborn in Exodus chapter 13? They're mine. They belong to me. So what about those who are in the church, those that have obeyed the gospel and enjoy the cleansing power of the blood of Christ? All God is saying is you're mine. You are my firstborn and your names are registered in heaven. You belong to me. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 19, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So, we belong to God. Now, very quickly, what about the future of the church? I said that the saved are in the church. They're in Christ. So, back up again and look at verse 12. In verse 12, Paul said, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified, some translations say meet, have, that he's made us meet to be partakers, of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Look at that word, inheritance. You remember the children of Israel, they received an inheritance in the promised land? That was a type of the inheritance that we have before us. And here's what Peter said, those of us that belong to the family of God, we have an inheritance. 
He said it is incorruptible. It's undefiled. He said it fades not away. And then he said it is reserved in heaven for you. Who's going to heaven? Those who belong to Jesus. Those who are a part of his body. Those who are living in accordance with his will. Who are living to the best of their ability to walk in the light. With the assurance that as we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us from all sin. So Jesus is the head of the body, which is the church. And as he said, as Paul said, it's Jesus who is the originator of the church. I want to close by asking this question. When you look at what the New Testament says, and I think all of us ought to be challenged to read and to study and to come to an understanding of what the Bible has to say about his redemptive plan. The Bereans of old in Acts chapter 17, they were commended because they searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things are so. The challenge to all of us, the challenge to people of every age, whether it was in the first century, the 20th century, the 21st century, whatever, the challenge is to read and study this book, to make sure that we follow what is written in the Bible. The psalmist said, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. God sent his son to die for you so that you might have the hope of life eternal. Thank you for listening to the Anchor of the Soul. Your speaker has been Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandage Road in Olive Branch, Mississippi. To hear this lesson again, go to olivebranchchurchofchrist.org. Tune in next Sunday for more of the Anchor of the Soul. Fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love.